welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I am back in the Stream PDX Airstream here in Northeast Portland with Kirsten Lopez. I think the last time I was in this uh, lovely retro trailer was the last time I had Kirsten Lopez on the show. Uh, we talked about uh, the work-life balance, and we're back to call bullshit on all sorts of things. Uh, but this is a continuation of a theme that's been developing about the socio-political context in which archaeology sits. So let's open up with the kind of letter of the law that 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 builds the foundation where archaeologists in the United States work. And this is the NHP law of, did you say it was 1966? Yes, NHPA of 1966. So there is an intro. So this is right now, as I'm reading, is the National Historic Preservation Act as amended through December 16th, 2016. So... Section 1, Congress finds and declares that the spirit and direction of the nation are founded upon and reflected in its historic heritage. The historical and cultural foundations of this nation should be preserved as a living part of our community, life, and development in order to give a sense of orientation to the American people. Historic properties significant to the nation's heritage are being lost or substantially altered, often inadvertently, with increasing frequency. The preservation of this irreplaceable heritage is in the public interest so that its vital legacy of cultural, educational, aesthetic, inspirational, economic, and energy benefits will be maintained and enriched for future generations of Americans. There's a little bit here that also speaks directly to the time in which this was written in 1966, which, as the previous portion that I read, also sounds very resonant with today. In the face of ever-increasing extensions of urban centers, highways, and residential, commercial, and industrial developments, the present governmental and non-governmental historic preservation programs and activities are inadequate to ensure future generations a genuine opportunity to appreciate and enjoy the rich heritage of our nation. The increased knowledge of our historic resources, the establishment of better means of identifying and administering them, and the encouragement of their preservation will improve the planning and execution of federal and federally assisted projects and will assist economic growth and development. Although the major burdens of historic preservation have been borne and major efforts initiated by private agencies and individuals, both should continue to play a vital role. It is nevertheless necessary and appropriate for the federal government to accelerate its historic preservation programs and activities, to give maximum encouragement to agencies and individuals undertaking preservation by private means, and to assist state and local governments and the National Trust for Historic Preservation in the United States to expand and accelerate their historic preservation programs and activities. There are a lot of points in that that are I think salient's probably the best word. I don't know. It's the first word that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about kind of laying the the context for for where archaeology lives and and works, um, here we are in Portland, Oregon, and um, I I think one of the hottest topics that that we hear in our neighborhoods, and I think it kind of makes national news, is is gentrification. And this is a pattern of development that's been happening kind of since the last economic recession, I think, yeah. um, which we can come back around to how that shaped us as archaeologists. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's been a pattern of development and it's been something that archaeologists have to uh, work with and reckon with 
and at times work against and at times work for and um you know just here in our neighborhoods there's there there are community groups um there's there's a group called um stop demolishing portland um and they're very very active they they um they have they have a large and vocal facebook group and then they also turn up for um large development things and and uh, city council planning meetings and stuff like that but um <clears throat> you know where where i see that turning towards the the need for archaeologists to be more involved in a community group like that is one of the the common topics that they talk about and quite angrily is the need for stronger protections for historic districts and for national um, register status um, to prevent <clears throat> you know here we are in northeast portland you live in southeast portland and, and they're, they have very similar characteristics and there are mm -hmm. historic districts here there and in between that uh they tend to trend around 1920s craftsman style homes mm. and um the the real hot button issue is there's there's demolition by developers and there's demolition by neglect and then there's also predatory um patterns of development from developers where they offer like cash for homes to lower income communities lower income members and they really stock them down and, and, and check them out and they, they kind of like wear them down until they eventually do sell their homes for um, what's uh, what would be good for them, but not a competitive price. If, if it was like a, a home like up to spec on the market, they could get way, way more for that. But that that would assume that 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 home would be uh, preserved and then passed on to another owner. Mm -hmm. What's what's happening, though? are these 1920s homes are being demolished and new century modern infill is coming in that one doesn't match the character of the neighborhood so it's disrupting the historic district and uh <clears throat> two it's often um like mid-rise and yeah. so it's it's a totally incongruous uh density it's, it's like this kind of like patchwork of like um, single, uh, uh, what do you call them? Like single residence homes, mm. um, versus like multiple family homes. Yeah. And part of the challenge with that, mm. and I saw this several years ago, shortly after I moved into, uh, the neighborhood that I'm still in now, um, is that when these mid rises came in, it was kind of unexpected, uh, cause it was sort of, it was in the, about 2012, uh, for the neighborhood that I'm in, it was kind of the beginning of that. Um, ironically, the most affordable and only place I could find to rent is now one of the most desirable and most expensive places to live in Portland. It's yeah. the weirdest thing. <laughs> so um, I've had to fight tooth and nail to stay there. Um, but, I, you know, I've been lucky. I've been able to stay. Most people, uh, a lot of my daughter's friends' families had to move. They yeah. relocated. And it's become much wider oh yeah <laughs> than it had been before um so it's a little disorienting in that way um but as far as the homes one of the things that the neighborhood really fought back about was that these mid-rises and some of the other larger proposed things at the time which are known now not allowed um is that they actually shadow out the sun year-round yeah. from some of the neighboring homes and it's something that I mean, the, the idea of gentrification, some people get it, some people don't. But one of the th things that, unless it's there and you can, like, see it and taste it, it's hard to really wrap your head around the fact that you have this looming building over you and you cannot grow anything. Yeah. Except moss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the moss sure does grow here. Uh, yeah, I think there's a great example of that, I think. I think it's roughly two blocks west of here on Williams Street. Mm -hmm. um, there oh, yeah. used to be a very large urban community garden uh, that served the, uh, was that the Boise neighborhood over there? And uh, mid-rises have popped up surrounding this dang uh, the uh, urban community garden and nothing grows there anymore. Yeah. And the people who used to depend on that place for their food security and 
prior to gentrification, that was a place of very low food security. And so they had to depend on urban community gardens for things like that. And now that's being taken away. And that's the kind of thing that like, <clears throat> if you're looking at a place that doesn't have, I, I think probably through the past decade, that neighborhood went from mm. not having very many places where you could get affordable food to a new seasons yeah which isn't exactly affordable food it's like the local whole foods it's, it's a little more affordable than whole foods yeah it's not exactly the food hole but <laughs> it... <laughs> most certainly i mean it's no safeway or albertson's or, or what Freddy's. have you yeah. yeah uh yeah and so and so then also you you get like uh mf tasty and like other places down williams that are like these hot brunch spots where where it's like i don't know like 20 plus a plate and the line around the block and the local residents are like okay well now where do i go to eat popeyes on on mlk like the, two blocks the other way um mm -hmm. so it's it's one of those things it's like it's very frustrating and, and that's the kind of thing though to circle way back on this this broad tangent i just went on about why preservation matters to people who actually live in places on the ground and they get really really angry about it and there's there's local community groups that um they they see the loss of the historic character of their neighborhood and maybe they can't articulate exactly why it's pissing them off but they do know that it's because things are changing from the way they are and and it's not in a good way and mm. it's in a way that that's losing what makes it a livable neighborhood and that's the kind of thing that archaeologists i think have to reckon with is <clears throat> in, in in one of the recent episodes i didn't really articulate it very well but um essentially the 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 point came up that uh, archaeology or, or certain realms of archaeology, especially CRM archaeology, is very tied to development mm -hmm. and in many ways an accomplice of development. But when you read the letter of the law, the NHPA from 1966 and then revised in 2016, um, I, th I, th I think there's a lot of work to do. And I think that that is our opportunity to be very public facing and demonstrate our our service to the public good because the letter of the law that you you just read obligates us to do that. That's yes. that's our job. Yes, we have to do this. You know, it, it's it's not like wouldn't it be cool if our 1920s craftsman's homes got to stay here? It, it's <laughs> like no, actually they have to. Yeah. And and the letter of the law even even calls to strengthen that. Um, and, and that's one of those things that we're not seeing right now. And so that's 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 a, a source of frustration for us. It's a source of frustration for residents. And uh, I, I think that's the that's the sociopolitical environment. That's the context where we are now. It's like we we have the we have the bedrock. We, we've got the the foundation of 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 the law that lets us do our work um and now here we are with all of these factors at play that that make it very complex and stuff like that yeah one of the one of the things i, re I remember um uh, anyone who's listened to wia or women in archaeology or my previous episode on here um i'm currently a graduate student so this is hearkening back to maybe a year or two ago um my time as a field tech, uh, I met maybe a handful of people, some of which are now no longer in archaeology, but I remember meeting other field techs and crew leaders and crew chiefs that were disenchanted with archaeology and were just so very lost in meaning and what are we doing yeah and this is self-indulgent and i don't see the point and i don't like this they don't pay me enough all of these things that are you know complaints from being burnt out yeah. and granted techs get worked hard when you get jobs you 
work to the bone. Yeah, and you don't get to see the the relevance of what you do. You don't get to see the end product. A lot of the times you just you don't. move on to the next project. And even outside of the tech community, you have other archaeologists that if you aren't involved or don't see the product or the reason why you're doing this, it's easy to get uh, disenchanted from from all of this. It's really exciting as an undergrad or as a volunteer. Um, but a lot of the times it's when you when the boots hit the ground and you're doing this for several years, um, if you if you don't remember or check back in and you don't stay in touch with the communities that you are serving, like you're there for a reason, you know, that's 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 what I mean, that's where burnout happens. Yeah. Um, I know people who have refused to work pipeline projects because they ethically object to the project itself. And yeah. that's that is rare. Um there are other situations where people get really excited about new development because it gives them a chance to work. Mm. But that's getting to the point, and, and this, is, this is kind of where I'm going with this, is if you're looking and you only know inside out 106 and 110 and any local relevant laws, a lot of them don't really tell you why. Right. And a lot of them don't tell you sort of what your motivation is. Some really great firms do have an ethical stance. Mm -hmm. There are others that shall go unnamed <laughs> <laughs> that have a propensity for cutting corners or making sure that their client is happy, which, of course, the people who are hiring them tend to not be the communities. It is the developer. Right. And that's where some of the ethical things, problems come in. And that's where I think there's a lot of rub and there's a lot of conflict in the archaeological community is yeah. across this this border between people who want to do good and people who want to be employed and to make their business work. Right. Both of which are respectable positions. Yes. And the challenge is making those work. Yeah. In a form that meets the requirements of the law. Yeah, and I think that that highlights the the need for kind of a, a nuanced understanding of all the complexity that goes on with, yes, you do need to get paid. Yes, you do need to make a living. Yes, you do need to serve the cultural resources. But also, there are actual people on the ground who like live in the community around your study area who are going to have to deal with whatever you write on paper. Yes. And and that that I think is more powerful than section 16, uh sorry, section 106, section 110. That's why it matters, you know, yeah. is like because people have to live with what you're going to do. Yes. And then of course, there's the people who are living nearby if you're working in an urban area. There are people who uh seek the manifestations of the end product say ranchers nearby where you're working in an uh sorry a, a local community um there are tribes who deal with whether they live on the same land that you're working on or not still they have to deal with the repercussions because that is their ancestral land that you may or may not be okaying or not okaying something on um one of the more recent meetings that I went to over the last few months um, really highlighted the importance of archaeologists and CRM firms and um, other historic entities that deal with cultural resource management um, to deal with tribes directly and early on. Yeah. Early is better. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Early is best, because if you do it later, you're like, oh, damn, I totally fucked that one up. Right. <laughs> Might have to redo everything. Exactly. So early is best. Um, and make sure that you talk to everyone who has a claim, not just who happens to be conveniently nearby right. or is the loudest voice in an area. Yeah. Um, so obviously do your research beforehand and, and all of that jazz. Um, as a tech, you don't know going into it. Some 
crew chiefs will let you in a little bit about the project. Yeah. Um, I've definitely worked with my sh- fair share of lovely people who, when I ask, I get excited. I'm like, okay, so what's this about? What, what are we doing this for? Like, what's the, the over, overall project? Because then I know what I'm looking for, why I'm looking for it, what what all is going on yeah um especially like the what am i looking for uh-huh yeah <laughs> okay. that, that's some, a pretty important question yes because sometimes there are also those who mm. will not tell you yeah and those situations kind of suck because it you're doesn't like, feel good no you're like i don't i they're okay there's dirt i know that i'm supposed to look for anything but then when I point things out, sometimes they're like, no, yeah, no, that's that's probably modern. Yeah. Of course, that response is <laughs> totally bogus and you still record it because right. probably is not is. Right. And when it comes to fes- fence posts and linear rock or even just stacks of rock, you always record them. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Folks back east, if you ever work out west, always record the stacks of rock. Yes. Doesn't matter how old or new they look, just just do it. Yeah, <laughs> you'll be better in the end. Oh yes, I I think it's it's timely that that you you mentioned um you know that that people have to work on pipeline projects and so on and so forth thing things that you don't necessarily feel good about working on but it is um it, it's a job mm-hmm. and it, and it pays the bills and so on and so forth. I've been there. I've had to do that, and it was uh, nine years ago, as of uh, two days ago. Wow, that's specific. (laughs) That I was uh, working on a uh, a compliance project for a proposed strip mine in West Virginia, and... um, I had to, as, as part of my role with this project, I had to do an uh, economic assessment for what was going to happen if this were allowed to go on. And all of the research I was able to pull was it was, it was the most impoverished county in the state, uh, and it had been absolutely gutted by extractive resource uh, industries. And here I was about to go in and um, if I didn't find anything, essentially rubber stamp uh, yet another extractive resource project that was going to, all the research indicated, impoverish the area. And so uh, it was one of those things where I was like, well, I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm not being paid to be a sociologist here. So the best I can do is just try and find the things in the ground and document all the historic resources. And so it was one of those things where, you know, in a nutshell, and also not to uh, um, get into any, any into too much hot water here, is uh, the things that happened on that project galvanized me and radicalized me to the angry jerk that you know today. Uh, <laughs> and I refused flatly to ever do another job for a coal mining company ever again and i was really fortunate because the the boss i had at the crm firm i had uh, who was a a close friend and mentor respected that and he never sent me out on another thing and and he promised to not bid on jobs like that anymore and so it was nice to um know that he had my back and you know from then on I was I was doing things like um there's uh, my I, I did a lot of work for endangered Indiana bat management areas mm. nice and so <laughs> I, I was just surveying in uh potentially suitable habitats for an endangered bat and found a lot of cool stuff out there but it was one of those things it, it was like you know I, I just had to say no I'm not doing this. Um, and also I, I ended up finding a lot of stuff that did not let the, the, the thing go. Uh, and so, you know, but that, that was a, I think that was a formative experience in early on in my career as a, as an archeologist that showed me that, um, you can go on jobs that, that one suck, but two like, don't make you feel good about what you do. 
and that's that's a conversation I've had with a lot of archaeologists too. Is is sometimes you got to do work that that doesn't make you feel good because it pays the bills, but then in the end you have to question the structures and the laws that made you do that. And so to go to go back to something you said earlier is. You know, th- there there are certain firms and there are certain projects where um, you you get into some darker territory, some kind of slimier territory, and you know what sucks the most about that is that it's legal. <laughs> is their interpretation of the law it is like, yeah, that does pass, but man, that sucks, and so that that's yeah. that that just highlights the 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 thing that makes me like stay angry, but also stay optimistic is like, um, we can always do better. Like we can do better. And then when you, when you go back to how, how the law, the NHPA was actually written, we are implored and we are urged and we are obligated to do better all the time. Yes. The quality, quality work is, is part of the, the challenge I think that we're set to, it is unfortunately a very difficult thing to hold a standard for um, when it comes to writing good reports. Is <laughs> <laughs> a really great one. Filling out field forms in a logical manner is yeah. another one. <laughs> Knowing the field that you're working in. Um, that's a whole other tangent for a whole other time um, when it comes to working in the field and knowing what you're doing yeah and what you're looking for and identifying um but i digress uh (laughs) so some of the things that have happened in the last few years that are relevant to some of the things that we have poked at a little here with a stick um earlier on in something that everyone should probably be familiar with if not then you've been living under a rock is <laughs> what has been termed dapple or the dakota access pipeline uh, most people probably saw across all sorts of social media in 2016 the no dapple situation um the protests that have brought together the largest indigenous gathering in American history, it's significant, yeah, to say the least. The things that happened there were atrocious and gave archaeology, for the first time, for one of the few times that archaeology actually makes public and broadcast news, it didn't look so good. Yeah, we walked <laughs> away with a black eye yes, from that one. for sure. And not to say, and this kind of goes into so many different things because you have a lot of it kind of gets into the separation of of powers here when it comes to crm projects and development so you have the developer who has this project in this case it was a pipeline that crossed what eight states seven states something like that and there's a number of ways that for the permitting process you can set this up especially when it crosses state lines which as a federal project, it should really only be under one, but that's a whole other (laughs) side. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we're not telling you how to do your job, but uh, we we will say you could have done it better. Uh, Well, so this is coming from like the development applying from the permit perspective. Right. They chopped it up into a bunch of different pieces to make it more manageable. I get it. Rather than one monstrosity. Then you have the agencies that are assigned the management of each project. Now, this one larger project being chopped up into multiple little projects then get managed by more than one agency, which makes communication and um, also collaboration very difficult. Because as we all know, agencies, not on the fault of the employees necessarily always, but just the way that bureaucracies work, it can be slow, it can be cumbersome. It's like trying to steer the Titanic a little bit. Yeah. Um, then you have the subcontractors, which include archaeology. It also includes uh, biologists, other environmental firms and things. Uh, you get local communities and ranchers, all of the interested parties. Then 
to add to all of this insanity, you get the the permitting and the approval process, which is separate from, in some ways, from, uh, and anyone can totally go online and correct me on this, but this is my understanding, um, from the overseeing agent does not grant the permit for the archaeology. So the archaeology overseer is not always an archaeologist in all instances for federal agencies in training. (laughs) (laughs) You have the permit people that go in to be like, okay, go ahead and, and start on this. We have all of our things, all of the okays and the whole environmental, like the EIS system and and all of those things. So you have NHPA, you have NEPA, which is probably the biggest hitter in that situation. All of these pieces come together in a very incoherent fashion. And this is not as troublesome with smaller projects. Um, It can actually make things move a little faster when you have more people involved. But with this behemoth of a project, it made it so that you had portions of the pipeline constructed before other portions. And whether it was intentional or not, one of the most controversial pieces got constructed last. So here you have, well, it's already 95 or 97% finished. Right. We have to finish it. Situation. And of course, eventually, Obama said, uh, yeah, no. Shortly before he left office, unfortunately. Yeah. That was a convenient position to take. Yeah, it was. A little too, little too late. Exactly. So part of the challenge and one of the biggest issues that I had with the whole project was the contractors, the construction workers, and whoever made the call that when the tribes decided to take the uh, contractor to court, they bulldozed it. Yeah. They just wiped out the site. They said, oh, once it's destroyed, then we have nothing to argue about. It's gone. It's past. So I think this was one of the things that happened over the last few years that has actually been a weirdly insightful or um, model piece yes. for things that have happened since then. Absolutely. That was a test. Yes. That was a test to see how, how one, the the public would react, and two, uh, law enforcement would, would react to the public, and three, uh, the judicial system would work, and I, I guess four how far you can push the laws and let them break and then keep working anyhow that's the kind of smash and grab politics that's the kind of smash and grab like neoliberal capitalism that is utterly running ramshackle over cultural resources right now and that's the kind of thing that makes me ashamed to be part of that community that says yeah, let's 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 do compliance work for something like this. My point of fr- frustration comes from the the fact that that um, this kind of development it's it's unsustainable, it's unjust, um, and and the things that happen on the sidelines, you know, I know they aren't the part of the scope of work of of archaeologists, but the 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 crimes against civil rights that happened. Yeah there as a whole like that gives me chills like that gets my hackles up and that's something that is yes a different conversation but it it does need to be acknowledged that like to be part of the discipline that's an accomplice to that that's no no i mean we're supposed to according to what i read at the beginning of this episode we are here to help represent the the public, the groups on the ground. Yes. We're here for the indigenous groups. We were the first people to really represent to the U.S. government about the sites and the land to act as sort of yeah. cultural negotiators between indigenous groups of the United States and the U.S. government mm-hmm. in a quasi-successful manner. I yeah. wouldn't say that it's always <laughs> been great, for sure, especially historically, but 
and even today, obviously, from this. Um, but that's our role. That yeah. is the role that we actually put ourselves into because when CRM laws were first enacted, guess whose boots were on the ground trying to be the advocate for these sy systems? Yeah. Archaeology professors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> were our first CRM people. And you know why CRM business models kind of suck? Is because it was professors who knew nothing about business that had actually enacted those first things. But they were taking activist stances. Yes. And oh, how far we have come from that. Yes. And it, it, it's one of those things where, yes, I'm so frustrated that, um, that development is the engine of archaeology or engine of CRM archaeology at least. But that highlights the disconnect mm -hmm. of the discipline from the people that it impacts and you know what we started off with the episode like um you know where are the archaeologists representing the communities here uh as their 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 city is actually being bulldozed around them and replaced by something that i don't know is some kind of dystopian hell and they don't like that they're they're pissed off about that but we are obligated and, and we are you know uh, encouraged even by by the law to take some really hard stances on this thing as, mm -hmm. as archaeologists and, and to go back to to dapple you know we could have done more there there were a lot of lessons learned and then looking yeah. forward to the future you know we we've got this looming thing the border wall that mm -hmm is this thing that has, has raised a lot of hackles in our, in our discipline. And, and that's the kind of thing that has me really mad is, um, I don't, I don't want to be part of an archeology span that says I want to do compliance work for the border, the wall. border wall. And <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those things where it's just like, yes, we have to do compliance work, but, why should this ever be part of the conversation? The border wall, for Christ's sake. Like, uh, I'm encouraging direct action. Like, go on strike. Like, if, if you need some encouragement, look to all the teachers who are making less than you in West Virginia running wildcat strikes against even their union bosses who settled for weaker deals than they were given. Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things. Like, organize, do direct action. You know, don't let this thing happen because you you are a servant to the public good as yes. an archaeologist. You're a servant to the resources. And it comes back around like, yes, I know you need to make a paycheck. I know you need to make a living. But but you're here in this yeah. for a reason like this. Yeah. That's the whole point of archaeology is. Is like you're saying, it's it's service to the public. And sometimes there's definitely people who are like. How do does archaeology serve the public? I have a hard time making that connection. I'm like, oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> Let's have a conversation. I'll buy the coffee. <laughs> yes. So one of the things that's easy to put this in perspective, or an easier way to put this in perspective, is to look at archaeology globally. So granted, I haven't worked internationally for a number of years, but to my understanding, this was before things started going to pot in the last few years um <laughs> as far as the eu and all that yeah um is going on so crm in the uk is publicly funded it's government basically because that is who you're working for you're working for the people i.e the government's supposed to represent the people that's that's the theory behind that not private corporations like right. it is here there are some, or actually many places in the world, where excavation, um, except when totally, totally necessary in development situations, um, is totally, like, that's, archaeologists are more about preservation. Yeah. And elsewhere in the world, it's actually considered not cultural resource management, but heritage management. Yes. Because that makes more sense. It's not a resource that we're mining. Yeah. Um, that was well, the early 20th back, century. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that makes me think of, of a specific thing that, that was mentioned in the NHPA that treats heritage as a living thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, that is much more aligned with indigenous perspectives. Yes. 
than it is with development perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that's what we see with indigenous groups here in the States and in Canada and the, the time I've spent in New Zealand, you know, they, they call it heritage management. And that's because it heritage is a living, breathing thing. It's, it's actually a, a, f a functioning part of their community. It's, yes. it's not something that is um, in the way of a bridge or, or a, a, a mid rise or whatever, you know, and yeah, totally. Exactly. Um, to my understanding or what I remember reading about India, that's uh, archaeology is above ground. They don't they don't really dig unless they yeah. really have to. <laughs> There's no like, <laughs> oh, this is interesting. Let's dig a hole here. Right. Because they know what's there, at least due to oral history. And that's something that is I have seen respected in certain cases by academic archaeologists where they respect the oral histories of the indigenous people in the don't dig here instruction. Yeah. You say, okay, <laughs> I trust you. That sounds really interesting in the back of my head as an archaeologist. However, we're working together. You've been here longer. I am here to serve you and the other people who have since moved here and claim this land as theirs as well. Yeah. So that's where, I mean, things... The U.S. is no simple terms when it comes to heritage, as we talked about <laughs> before the show. Yes. But it's 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 a complex picture, and we have this tendency to want to oversimplify everything. Yeah, and it tends to be in the direction against archaeology. In the past is the past. We're here in the present and future. Let's move forward. Let's yep. get rid of the past. The past doesn't matter, which is a bullshit position yes. <laughs> in my mind <laughs> maybe we should call this episode uh don't go dig a hole <laughs> there you go because <laughs> that reinforces imperialism uh that's a whole other conversation yeah there's been a movie released recently that highlights a lot of that yes yes <laughs> do you want to go into that or do you want to save oh. it for another episode I'll poke at it but i'll i, I really want to dig into it on a full episode um or maybe a a blog post. I know it's kind of late in coming. Um, a couple weeks ago uh, from this recording, probably almost a month, I'm guessing, from when this is actually out, mm -hmm. a groundbreaking film is the best way I can put it in so many respects, uh, was released by the title of Black Panther, which... Granted, as a white archaeologist, it is like the most colonial imperialist position I can come from with respect to this movie, which is why it made me so excited to see this film, like really highlight the things that we want to talk about with the public and the public has a really hard time grasping. Yeah. So it was wonderful to see things put in perspective about colonialism, about museum heritage and museum collections um it digs in on a little bit on on slavery and the fact that that is still a living impactful part of world history not just in the u.s yeah i mean especially in the u.s definitely in but, I mean, we can't discount the Caribbean. We can't discount South America. I mean, there's, and even in Africa, the impact of, of pulling people out of that situation. I mean, there's, it touches on so many pieces of, of globalization and the history of colonialism from so many angles. I walked out of there going, there's so many things. Oh, my God, there's so many things. I just, I can't. I just can't even. And yeah. I've been trying to call everyone be like, have you seen this movie yet? They're like, no. Like, you have to go see it. And it just, it's one of those things that it, it's hard to, to find resources, especially for the mass public that has, that brings these issues out to yeah. the forefront. I mean, granted, a lot of the publicity about this film speaks to the importance of the film to black heritage into yeah. African heritage, which is not to be dismissed by any means. Absolutely. But coming from an archaeological perspective and an anthropological perspective, as a white American archaeologist, it speaks volumes to things that I 
want to tell my relatives about that they have a hard time pulling together because they don't have that worldview. They don't have that experience to be able to really pull together all those pieces in a, a way that's easy to understand if you're speaking to someone. Yeah. But in this film, I think it really kind of, um, I hate using this word, but it's the best word, coagulates <laughs> or coalesces. It brings together in a solid manner the, the things that colonialism and globalization in general have done to the world and to peoples of indigenous earth. Yeah. Let's just say. So that's my soapbox for yeah. that. And I'll, I'll leave the rest in, you know, to pull that apart for later. But yeah. that's, if you haven't seen it, go see it. I think that's amazing. The, the power, the, the power of storytelling and the, the power of movies and graphic novels and comic books to tell these stories in a way that's, that's easily digestible, Yeah, but has such a powerful message that that provides a social commentary that like leaves you leaves you really thinking about like the deeper things and the way it intersects with everything exactly like that that we live and breathe with and all that yes because you know as we understand however not everyone does is the past is not in the past the past is now yes because we live every second and every living breathing moment of every day is the product of what happened before us yes including our individual selves Mm -hmm. so that's something that we can't forget and we can't necessarily sweep under the rug and tell someone else oh you know that was so long ago you just need to get over it uh, that I just want to punch people in the face. When but they that say legitimizes that. it. Yeah. And that legitimizes the continuation of that. Yeah. And that's that's why I, I think it's great that we can have these conversations and, and, and that's it, it's interesting to see things like that coming into uh, mainstream culture. And and it's like sure, yes at times it might not be the the most eloquent or the most the most elegant or, or the most like um, academically sound. Uh, treatment of you know colonialism and, and, and stuff like that but um, I, I think at some point you have to say hey at least we're having this conversation at yes. least at least we're critically evaluating this well and that's what stories like you're saying are for like mythologies um, oral histories are kind of a different category but the uh, it's hard to hard to say, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that's all of these the stories that we tell to each other and to um, our descendants from here from our ancestors and things like that. I mean this is it tells us about who we are. Yeah, and I think as Americans, there's a really big disconnect from that in so many ways, both from blatant erasure intentionally being like well we're now part of the melting pot we're gonna go ahead and erase and not talk about family history because you know we're all american we're now. all americans let's, now. let's unite like the, it's the, the whole message of unity is one of those things where it's like uh yeah unity on one scale is is totally a good thing but um unity on many 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 scales is a total erasure and is is actually kind of uh not kind of, but but it is violence. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that I think we're starting to face as a culture in different ways. Yeah. Um, both in the realization that that has happened and is happening. And there are some angles of our society that are like, cool, let's, let's do some more of that. <laughs> and that's... Not cool in my no, mind, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what you see. That's where these the white supremacist angles come from. That's yeah. where the Trump deciding to make Columbus Day a national holiday and say things were great back when or who was it that I, think, I can't remember who it was when asked what was the um great oh when was america great and i think the answer was oh the civil war was pretty good and there was a big oh that was the text i think it was texas the guy who was running that had been accused of um oh what was his sexual name? misconduct Lamar? with the 14 year old 
Started with an L, I think. No. Lamar, uh, maybe? I don't think so. I, I don't know. Guy. It's just that they've they've really <laughs> unpacked the clown car of, of just the <laughs> yes. the most terrible people imaginable. Exactly. And so it's like these these statements, you kinda go like, wait, what? <laughs> did you did you just say that? <laughs> yeah. And I guess by the time this episode airs it, it it's gonna be like way way after the punch, but uh <laughs> the the whole president for life thing the mm. the our our illustrious leader saw that uh the president of china um uh, quote unquote consolidated power oh, yeah. uh, and declared himself president for life and what kind of person sees that and goes hey i want to do that yeah that looks like a good idea yeah that that looks like a great idea that no. that's totally what i want to do it's like yeah i i want to be a, a despot <laughs> <laughs> sir, 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 I think that currently disqualifies you for office. And yeah. We're going to have to see you out. Yeah. Oh, also, that's it. Um, no more presidents after this. We're, we're done. We're done. No more presidents. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. All right. So was there anything more I, on the border wall that we wanted to touch on? I don't want to touch the border wall. Okay. Ever. Let's leave uh, that alone. I hope no, nobody <laughs> touches the border wall. That it never um, becomes a thing. Unless it's to tear it down. Yeah. 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 That'll be good. That would be good. I think that's that's probably a good place to end it. Um, if if you've listened this far, uh, check out the Women in Archaeology podcast. You can hear Kirsten there uh, and the other great uh, hosts of the podcast. Uh, they share some really important perspectives on some really tough topics. And uh, I draw a lot of inspiration from them. So, uh, Kirsten, thanks again for joining the episode. I look forward to seeing you next time. Of course. Lovely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Go to Go Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, i've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students teachers whatever uh, you can also find me online i'm very online uh, the blog is godigahole.com uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com